The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. We're talking about a very important topic, and our guest just couldn't be more perfect to discuss this this topic with us. Our guest today is Chloe Dimrovsky. She's the executive director of DRI International, and she's regarded as one of the most foremost authorities on disaster recovery and preparedness, and she's been featured in USA Today and Bloomberg and many, many more. And we're going to be talking about how businesses can and should prepare for natural disasters. You know, we've talked so much on Go Green Radio about the various effects of climate change and what's expected to come our way and different ways that communities and individuals can uh, adopt some adaptation strategies. But this really goes to the heart of what makes our society work. I mean, when there's a natural disaster, we need our businesses to be open so that we can get the products and services that we need um, to get our communities back on track. And so Chloe's going to be discussing a variety of scenarios with us and ways that businesses can be more resilient in the face of natural disasters. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Chloe. Glad to have you on. Thanks, Jill. I'm really happy to be here. You know, I've listened to the show before and I think it's really great. You cover a lot of really important topics and I'm happy that we're part of them. Well, I am too, and thanks for for joining us today. I'd like to begin by having you talk about the organization for which you serve as Executive Director, DRI International. I'd love for you to tell our listeners about the services that your organization provides and then some of the various types of clients that utilize those services. Sure, Jill. I'm happy to do that. So, Disaster Recovery Institute is the leading nonprofit that helps organizations prepare for and recover from disasters. And by disasters, of course, we mean a variety of things from natural disasters, like you mentioned, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, to uh, political problems, to technology problems, to organizational problems, all kinds. We provide education, accreditation, and thought leadership in what's called business continuity and also related fields. And we were founded in 1988 by a group of industry pioneers. We've been doing this for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Since that time, DRI International has grown to include a network of over 13,000 certified professionals, and they're based in more than 100 countries, from the United States, of course, to Canada, Singapore, China, Malaysia, Colombia, Brazil, Italy, France, kind of all over, really. Mm -hmm. And in those places, we do conduct local language training uh, in over 50 countries, in trainings that really start from the college level, the introductory level for those people who are entering the field, all the way up to the master's level for those people who are really, truly experts in what we do. And then our methodology that, that comprises our training is used by thousands of organizations and governments that range from Fortune 500 companies all the way down to small businesses. 
So the question is, you know, what do we really teach? We're teaching about resilience. And resilience is about the ability to to adapt to unforeseen events and to be prepared to address whatever might come your way. So from a business perspective, this really came out of what was known as contingency planning and disaster recovery, hence our name. These were largely coming from either an information technology-led response or um, a physical security response to the natural disasters and terrorism that were affecting businesses in the early 1980s through the 1990s, where they were starting to say, okay, we need to have some sort of plan in place in case something goes wrong, something that we didn't expect. So over time... Sorry, go ahead. No, that's, you know, and it's funny, I was in the military during that time, and contingency plans were a part of our, you know, vocabulary then as well. And so it's so Mm -hmm. interesting to hear that that was, you know, that was the same time it was a burgeoning idea in businesses as well. So please go right ahead. Absolutely. And we do see, um, just to build on that point a little bit, we have a large number of former military and current military uh, personnel who are entering this field or, or are leaders in this field because those are transferable skills in, into the private sector. So, so we do see a lot of ex-military taking up leader, leadership positions because they are so good at contingency planning and thinking on their feet in that way. Mm-hmm. So there was, um, at, at that time, this need to, to recognize that this needed to be elevated to a, a business-led process, that it was really an enterprise-wide problem, and that's where it really became business continuity management. And business continuity is really about creating plans. You need to have a whole department that is dedicated to creating a plan that starts with a risk assessment. You know, what are the risks that my organization faces? What are the natural risks that, that could occur? Do I live in a, in a floodplain? Um, is my business in the path of a tornado typically? So those kinds of natural disaster type problems and then other ones as well. So you need to do a, a risk assessment for your organization, then figure out how those risks might affect your business. And that's what's called a business impact analysis. Then you start to design potential strategies for, okay, if this is the impact that has occurred, how can my business address it in order to continue to perform my core functions so that I can continue to deliver to my customers, I can continue to deliver for my employees, I can be there for my people, I can continue to do what is most important until we're back up and running at a normal pace. And so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the beauty of of this model is really that uh, business continuity is what's called an effects-based framework, and that is really an action-driven framework. So risk managers typically focus on mitigating risk and saying, okay, what is the probability that something will happen? What's it going to cost to try to prevent it from occurring? Business continuity is kind of the other side of the the coin, and it's saying, okay, so maybe that didn't work. Something has happened. Something has happened that has affected my business, whether it is a disaster or more of an incident or a disruption, something has occurred, and how do I deal with it? And so the framework that is really so, so simple and, and effective is that we really break it down into only four categories of problems. Four things can affect me. One is something has happened to my facility and I can't recover. Um, my facility. So there's been a flood, there's been a bomb scare, there's been a pandemic, so I can't access it. Um, There's been some sort of man-made event, something has happened to my facility. Then you have a business or an operations problem, 
there's been a problem in my supply chain. There's a processing error. I have a, I have a, a strike, maybe, something of that kind. Third, there's a technology problem. Something has happened, and I can't access my information. Or fourth, an organizational problem, something that people might not typically consider part of business continuity, but it certainly does affect your ability to run your business. And that could be something like a merger, um, a succession problem, an intellectual property issue, etc. So when you have divided the potential effects into these four categories, that really enables you to think about the next phase, which is, okay, what do I do about it? How am I going to actually protect my business and get it back up and running, rather than thinking about all of the thousands of things that can go wrong, because we're never going to be able to predict everything. We don't know what's going to happen to us next. We can't control that, but what we can control is how well we're prepared for it and how we're going to react to it. That is a really smart strategy. That's that's really um, exciting that businesses can be trained to to you know in such a simple format. Those four pillars come up with plans to deal with each one, and that's that's just so fascinating. I'd like to use some of the recent natural disasters that have occurred to talk about how businesses can prepare for the disruptions that these events cause. And I'd like to begin with the wildfires in California and other parts of the West. Um, we know, those of us who live in California, they are increasing in size and increasing in frequency. And a lot of experts are predicting that this trend will continue as a result of climate change. What are some mm-hmm. of the disruptions that businesses might experience as a result of wildfires and how can a solid risk management plan help them prepare? Sure. I'd first like to start by saying that in general, you mentioned climate-related disasters and obviously the the wildfires and drought are are increasing because of a climate-related issue. And research is showing that climate-related disasters alone have more than doubled since the 1980s. And today they account for more than 80% of all reported disasters worldwide. So this is certainly a huge and growing threat that we really do need to address. And it's important research and awareness that shows like yours do that help us to do that and to build that awareness. Um, In terms of the wildfires that are impacting California, yes, uh, the Valley Fire that occurred northwest of San Francisco was the third most damaging wildfire in state history. Um, killing four people and destroying 1,958 homes and other structures. Forecast economic losses from the fire were in excess of $1.5 billion, with preliminary insured losses estimated at more than $925 million. That's assuming that people were even carrying this type of insurance, which is a whole other issue. Um, and the truth is that we're not even through peak U.S. wildfire season in California yet. That starts in late September and lasts through early November. And wildfires in 2015 have already caused more damage and financial loss in the U.S. than in any other year since 2007. So it's really an unfortunate and scary year. And Mm -hmm. wildfires are particularly scary because they occur so suddenly and they spread so quickly and erratically, they're really tough to control. And so it's really important to, you know, know if you run a business or if you live in an area that is affected by wildfires, it's something that you really need to think about and prepare for in advance. Um, That's part of that risk assessment process, understanding the risks that you you could potentially face and then thinking about it in advance. What are you going to do? Of course, um, you know, the best advice we can give for people is to practice evacuation routes and take evacuation orders seriously. Um, Advance prepare in advance for the possibility of emergency evacuations and understand what you're going to do, how you're going to address it with other people in your 
in your business, uh, fellow employees, and then, of course, also with your family, because if you don't feel like your family is safe, you're certainly not going to be thinking about your business. You're going to be thinking about your family first. That's so true. And I think what a lot of people in California didn't realize is that um, a lot of our energy infrastructure, transmission lines from some of the power that's generated in the Pacific Northwest, those transmission lines come through um, areas that are also most vulnerable to wildfires. And so mm-hmm. what what a lot of people didn't realize, and this happened last summer, there was a fire near Yosemite um, that actually took out some of the electricity that serves San Francisco. This is These are geographies that are separated by hundreds of miles, and yet uh, wildfires, you know, 300 miles away were affecting the electricity for, you know, businesses in the city. And so that's one of the things that I think a lot of uh, your training can certainly help businesses assess is those um, infrastructure issues that could impact a business when natural disasters occur, even if, um, you know, the, the business facility itself is safe. Um, some of the infrastructure upon which they depend, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in the next segment, can be impacted by the natural disaster that can cause disruption as well. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about some other types of natural disasters and ways that DRI International can help businesses prepare and prepare to recover from the impacts of these types of disasters. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our topic today is how businesses can prepare for natural disasters, both prepare um, maybe to avoid some of the damage, but also to recover when the damage is unavoidable. And our guest today is Chloe Demrovsky. She's the executive director of DRI International, and they this is what they do. They're a, an organization that help. Uh, that they help businesses, they help government entities think through risk management plans and disaster preparedness plans so that they can be resilient in the face of natural disasters or other types of disasters as well. You know, Chloe, I want to talk about something that was, you know, current events just last week, uh, the flooding that happened in South Carolina. Again, flooding is a phenomenon that experts say will increase in frequency due to climate change. I think it will also increase in frequency due to aging infrastructure that's not ready for some of the extreme weather events. Um, But when you couple what happened in South Carolina with, uh, say, for instance, Hurricane Odell that hit Cabo San Lucas last year and decimated their economy for months, um, even tornadoes, you know, they have this effect. What are some of the, the disruptions and what are some of the ways that businesses well, they might not even consider that they would be impacted, but um, what can businesses do um, who, you know, when they're in these flood regions to prepare? Sure. Um, wind and water, of course, are two of the most destructive forces that we see globally. Um, water is incredibly destructive, but it's interesting that, you know, when we think about hurricanes, people think about kind of the, the, the gale force winds and the rain that comes down. It wasn't really until... Um, Hurricane Sandy, I think that we really started to look at storm surge and that kind of came into the, at least the U.S. public consciousness that flooding was really one of the big problems that, that can face an area um, after a hurricane. So we had the flooding in South Carolina as well. This is a huge problem. What do you do with the water? Even if it hasn't affected your home, as you said, it might have affected the infrastructure and your ability to get drinking water, to be able to drive on the roads, to, to, to get power. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that people don't think about, of course, is maybe if you're trying to drive in an area that's been flooded, um, you might want one of the biggest causes of flood-related deaths is actually people trying to drive through it. Um, a mere six inches of fast-moving flood water can knock over an adult, and it, and it takes just one foot of rushing water to carry away a small car. So two, wow. just two feet of water can carry away most vehicles, and that's not something that people really think about. They go, oh, maybe it's not so deep. I'll just drive through it, and then suddenly their, their vehicle gets taken away. So, so that's something that people really need to be aware of. And then I think, you know, I, I'm based in New York City, and during Hurricane Sandy, what we saw was it was actually really dry. There wasn't a lot of rain. And of course, there were winds and everything, but it was really the storm surge that caused the problems. So the next day, even if the buildings were undamaged, um, and even if they had power, 
employees couldn't get there, right? Because, um, mm-hmm. because of all of the different infrastructure problems around. So these businesses were not able to open their doors, even though their inventory was safe and their facility was safe, their people couldn't get there. So I think that the infrastructure point is a really good one. Well, and how can businesses prepare for those <laughs> incredible sets of circumstances? What kinds of things can they do in the aftermath of a situation like that to maintain at least some form of business operations? Yeah, of course, they're going, if they're the kind of business that can have work-from-home solutions, that can be one good option if people are uh, going to have power and they can work from home. That can really work. They can transition some of their work over to an area in a different region. Although, um, you know, also to use another New York City example, of course, we were impacted by uh, 9-11 and a lot of our planning was was modeled after that because we learned from past events and then we model our future planning based on our experiences. And in 9-11, that really only impacted downtown Manhattan. So then backup sites were in New Jersey and, and local places, Westchester or something like that. Now then Hurricane Sandy comes in and it impacts the entire region. So Mm -hmm. you have to start to think about, okay, maybe it needs to be even farther away than that. If you're a big business that can afford to to, um, have that sort of planning. And then the other thing that we learned a lot about is uh, generators and backup power. Generators tend to be in basements. Um, When there's flooding, Mm. uh, that's not going to work because then suddenly your, your generator is being flooded and you can't run that for your backup power solution. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to a guest we had on in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, and they were talking about what happened with the hospitals. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of the hospitals felt like they had great resiliency plans, but those generators that were in the basement flooded, and, you know, they, they were they were really in dire straits having to move patients out of the hospital, and it was an incredible story. Um, but again, you know, thinking about it, of course, if there's flooding and, you know, Manhattan is an island, it, it just makes sense to have the generators, you know, above sea level <laughs> or, or mm-hmm. maybe a little higher. And But it was just something people hadn't considered before. Um, speaking of sea level, last week on Go Green Radio, we talked to experts who are working to make the San Francisco Bay Area more resilient in the face of potential flooding and rising sea levels. And their maps show that within a relatively short amount of time, um, there are several large Silicon Valley businesses whose headquarters are in the likely flooding zone, like Google and Facebook and others. And I'm wondering, Chloe, do you expect to see businesses that are currently in coastal communities relocating inland as sea levels rise in the next few decades? Or do you think that coastal communities will be able to adapt to climate change in such a way that they'll be able to save that valuable coastal real estate? Well, I think we've certainly reached the point where climate adaptation will be necessary, and I think we'll start to see whole new business lines being created to deal with exactly this type of problem. Um, one place that I've been seeing a lot of them coming out of is, is the Netherlands, actually, because the mm. Netherlands has been dealing with being below sea level and, and dealing with water for centuries. So they're, they're mm-hmm. really good at this, and they're starting to advise other countries that are seeing these issues or preparing for these issues. 
Um, so I think that we will continue to see climate, climate adaptation. You see it in, in terms of what architects and designers are talking about, and resilience is suddenly a hot topic in that discipline where it wasn't even thought about before. Now suddenly it's an area of job growth and job creation. So I think that if we have people thinking about these problems and finding solutions for them, we will start to see some really clever ways at dealing with climate adaptation at the same time that we're dealing with the problem itself. And mm-hmm. There is an interesting challenge here where we're trying to balance resilience with some um, green solutions, for, for example. And I'll give you one example of that, which is that that comes from the United Nations. We think a lot about the United Nations in terms of the policies and, and kind of lofty global goals, but they also have a facility in New York City, and it's mm-hmm. on the water. It's on the East River, and um, it's been there a long time. It's really kind of old, and they're in the process of redoing it. So they created a new data center that was underground underneath their facility, um, and that's where they were going to store all of their servers and, and a lot of their information technology infrastructure. And the reason that they chose to locate it underground is because it was easier to cool. It was a more green solution because it was underground, so uh-huh. it would take a lot less to cool it. And then it just opened. Hurricane Sandy happened. The entire thing flooded. Uh, so we think that it's important to balance our priorities when we think about these kinds of problems. And, and the, main, the major thing is that we have uh, our designers thinking about these issues now. That mm-hmm. will help a lot. Yep, it sure will. Mm-hmm. You know, another kind of disaster that, um, you know, it's one of the things in California we always have in the back of our mind. Um, but we saw a really extreme example of, an, of earthquake damage in 2011. There was an, a large earthquake and tsunami that hit Japan. Of course, that was the one that knocked out the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And there were mm-hmm. businesses that were truly global um, that were adversely impacted for months. I mean, even to the extent that there were certain colors of paint for cars for automobiles that if you had ordered an automobile with this color paint it was only made there and uh, you weren't going to be able to get it I mean just weird things like that looking back at that 2011 incident what are some of the lessons that your organization took from that incident and how could businesses in that region how could they have done more to prepare for an event like that and what can the rest of us learn from that situation there's a lot to be learned from Japan in general. Japan is an incredibly prepared nation because it's a, it's a wonderful place to live, an incredible culture, great food, obviously, but mm-hmm. it's also a really dangerous island. They're prone to earthquakes. They're prone to tsunamis. They have active volcanoes. It's, it's a dangerous place. So the idea of preparedness is, is built into the fabric of, of their lives, of their culture. And, and so um, when something like this, triple disaster happened, I mean, it gives you an idea of the magnitude of what they were facing, that an incredibly prepared nation like Japan that runs national drills every year um, was unable to cope with something like that. So if it gives you an idea that if it, that had happened somewhere less prepared, it would have been far, far worse. And um, so it, they have a number of things. One is that the way that they were traditionally structured is that the businesses in Japan, it's a small business economy, really, and they're focused a lot on manufacturing and different kind of cottage industries. And those industries tend to cluster geographically in one area. It's a system called Koretsu. So, so the whole industry there, all the competitors are clustered. And if one of them has a problem, traditionally, another company would cover for them. 
um, mm-hmm. so that the business, it was a kind of a nationalistic idea that it would be better for that industry to stay in Japan. So a competitor would temporarily help their fellow Japanese business rather than see that, that business go away from Japan. So that had worked very well for them in the past. And then suddenly with something like of this scale, whole industries were being wiped out. So now we're starting to see the break, breakdown of that system and we're starting to see more offshoring, which is something that Japan would never have considered in the past. I was there last year for a big uh, UN uh, disaster risk reduction conference. Uh, we're part of a, the business and industry delegation that was uh, part of building that framework um, for how the UN is going to, to help countries, to lead countries to how to better deal with disasters. And so I was able to see a lot of what Japan is doing. And, and one example uh, is that they're actually, in, in places where towns have been wiped out, they're actually raising, they're bringing in earth to raise the level of the town above the height of the wave. So they're actually lifting the whole place before rebuilding it, which is a really, you know, large scale project. Uh That's pretty amazing. And I, I, I visited the, um, PG&E's Diablo Canyon nuclear facility, um, that's right on the California coast, not long after the Fukushima, uh, you know, plant was was flooded, and that's what caused you know the plant to shut down. And and I was asking them, so why couldn't the same thing that happened with the tsunami, you know, that took out Fukushima, happen here? And they were showing me how their backup systems were eighty feet above sea level in some places. They were even higher than that in some places, and um, they were showing me where you know, the level would have been at the Fukushima plant and, and some of the planning that they had done that took that into account. So it's all, it's all very, very interesting. And again, it's using, you almost have to use your imagination. What's the worst case scenario? Um, and sometimes that's hard to imagine when it hasn't happened before, but it sounds like that's what DRI helps businesses to do. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about some small business impact um, and, and maybe some ways that small businesses can adopt this risk management um, mindset, even though they may not be able to devote an entire department to this function, um, what's the, what they might be able to do to be more resilient. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. You know, we've been talking about large-scale disasters, things like earthquakes, uh, wildfires, hurricanes, and what have you. But sometimes there are smaller events that can have a tremendous disruption to companies. And I'm thinking in recent years about... um, Instances like the fire in the Bangladesh textile factory that killed dozens of workers and created quite a black mark on Walmart's reputation. Chloe, talk to us about ways that companies can get out in front of disasters like this. Right. So um, definitely what happened in Rana Plaza was tragically predictable and, and absolutely preventable as an event, and I think it's a really good example to talk about. Um, It was the result of, of course, large market forces that caused the migration of low-cost garment manufacturer largely out of China. Um, This was because of margin and capacity squeezes and suddenly, and and the increased cost of labor in China, suddenly companies were looking at Bangladesh. And it became a a hotspot for outsourcing this because it had had competitive prices, available capacity. Um, you know, there was reasonable quality assurance, uh, acceptable speed um, levels, and good trade regulations. So, so it became attractive for value and mid-market segments. So you're not talking about, you know, high-end fashion. You're talking about kind of basic T-shirts and jeans. Um, the reason they couldn't do anything that was too fashion-forward is because there were also a lot of problems, and these are known problems moving into um, – an area like Bangladesh. There are a lot of infrastructure problems. Um, you, the utilities are not necessarily where you'd want them to be. Roads are certainly not where you want them to be. And a lot of the manufacturing was being done in Dhaka, which is actually inland. So then it needed to be moved from that inland area down to a deep water port on the coast and then shipped all the way to, to a consumer-facing market. So that's a very long supply chain. You can't have something that is too fashion-conscious because it, it's simply not going to wait that long. But um, the price made it attractive regardless. So in this environment, you have suddenly suppliers who are um, customers, these big brands that are putting large orders into these companies, and they're saying, yes, I can do it, yes, I can do it. Um, and they weren't necessarily checking to make sure that that capacity was actually there. So in what happened in Rana Plaza was it was an eight-story commercial building, and it collapsed. Um, more than 1,000 individuals were killed. Uh, many more were injured. It's the worst disaster in the history of garment manufacturing. Mm. And what a lot of these big brands did was they said, 
Rana Plaza was a third-party supplier. We didn't know about it. This was a subcontractor to another supplier who couldn't meet our order, so they had outsourced it to meet, to meet demand. And what I would caution to consumer-facing brands is that there's no difference in terms of risk um, mm-hmm. because it's ultimately your consumer-facing label that is being taken pictures of in that rubble, and that is something that consumers will not forget. Um, mm-hmm. So we're seeing this kind of – and the worst part is that, you know, it's, it, this is not new. Um, <laughs> a little history lesson that on January 10th of 1860, uh, the Pemberton Mill in Lawrence, Massachusetts collapsed. At mm-hmm. the time, this was one of the worst industrial accidents in U.S. history. 155 workers were killed and 166 were injured. And this was caused by the same preventable factors that happened in, in Bangladesh. It was heavy machinery crowded on upper floors that were not built to deal with that kind of weight mm-hmm. and that there was substandard construction. The brick walls were improperly mortared and supported. Uh, the iron pillars supporting the floors were cheap and brittle. So these are all problems that are preventable and it's all about making sure that our companies and our customers are demanding that the value of a human life is the same no matter where it is in your supply chain. So I think mm-hmm. that companies really need to make sure that they're not just kind of looking the other way and hoping for the best. They need to right. be very active in monitoring these kinds of risks along their supply chain and, and understanding what their suppliers' true capacities are so that they're not setting them, themselves up and laying themselves open to this kind of threat. Mm-hmm. Well said. And, you know, my husband is a supply chain professional and we had, this is pillow talk for us. I mean, we talk about these issues all the time, (laughs) you know, and, um, and so I, I think that it's really, really important that companies do exactly what you said, take responsibility all the way down to the very last you know, link in their supply chain. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. And that takes a lot of due diligence. But as you said so perfectly well, you know, consumers see no difference between your first level and your last level of your supply chain. You're responsible. It's your label on it. And consumers want to feel good about what they're buying. And nobody feels good about buying products that cause human suffering. And so um, I think that's that's a really important piece to get out in front of and companies can and should. You know, sometimes there are things that happen during disasters that impact businesses over which they have little control. We talked about some of the infrastructure issues. And and the responsibility for the upkeep uh, or or the uh, you know even the upgrades of infrastructure typically falls upon government agencies and when you're training business professionals how do you train them Chloe to interface with government agencies in order to optimize their business preparedness and recovery plans um, when they're looking at some of these infrastructure pieces that they don't actually control Right. Coordination with external agencies is one of our professional practices, and we see that it's very important for the private sector to understand who their public sector partners are to introduce themselves to them and test and exercise with them in advance so that they preferably know each other on a first-name basis so that when something happens, it's not, oh, I have to call in and, and get in the queue with everybody else. It's, hey, Bill, this is what I need. You know what I need. How can we help you um, mm-hmm. is really important. And along those lines, I would say that we think about well, a lot of what we think about as government responsibility during a disaster 
is actually fulfilled by the private sector. And that's because in the U.S. we have a really unique model in that 85% of all government resources are provided by the, the private sector. So it's actually sometimes the inverse in that the public sector is really relying on business to get back up and running in order to make communities function again. And so businesses can help communities recover and can help the governments to get them there by being more prepared. Sometimes we don't look at it that way, and the press often doesn't look at it that way. So, for example, lower Manhattan during Sandy, you know, I I use examples from Manhattan a lot, obviously, but it's where I live. So Um, the banks, some some of them were lit up again and up and running uh, very quickly, and, and the press said, hey, is this, you know, additional resources are being given there, but that actually helps the community. If the big businesses can largely take care of themselves and get themselves up and running with as minimal reliance on government as possible, that means that government resources can go to those communities that are hardest hit and the most vulnerable and have the fewest resources available so that they can really support small business, vulnerable communities. And hopefully then those big businesses that have recovered can also lend their support to make sure that the community as a whole can recover faster. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a tremendous vision of how you know public private partnerships, um, especially in moments of duress, can work to help the whole community. I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of large companies that have one person, like you said earlier, maybe a whole department devoted to business continuity matters. But you know, we have a, a nation of small businesses and medium sized businesses, mm-hmm. and they likely cannot devote a full-time equivalent to disaster preparedness and recovery. What strategies do you recommend for helping small businesses assess and then address their risks? Uh, great point. You know, small small businesses are integral to our economy. They are the largest employer in the United States as a block, and um, they are the most underprepared. We have a little bit of data about small and medium-sized businesses, but it's probably not that great. But the Red Cross estimates that as many as 40% of small businesses that experience a disaster never reopen, Mm. uh, which is not a very um, positive statistic. Um, So we definitely need to work on better preparedness for this segment of the economy. And um, the good news is, however, that it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's mostly about thinking about these issues in advance, testing, exercising, training, and, and take carving a little bit of time out to write a plan. You can do that by using our 10 professional practices, which do scale down to that minimal level, and, and they're totally free of charge on our website. So that's a really good um, idea is to be able to start thinking about these issues in advance. And I think um, a, a fun example of that comes from the arts community here in New York City. We don't think of, about them as some, somebody that has to think about preparedness, but a lot of them were negatively impacted by Sandy. A lot of the art galleries in Chelsea were flooded, especially mm-hmm. the ones that were below sea level. Um, you know, dance companies like Martha Graham, their entire inventory was uh, all of their props and costumes were totally destroyed. So mm-hmm. now these groups are actually banding together in an industry group that is help, and they're helping each other to think about ways that they can support each other and, and strategies that they've determined that are unique to their industry to help them recover faster in the face of something like this. And um, so I think that those sorts of industry groups um, can really help small businesses to band together and come out faster mm-hmm. after something has happened. And you all are part of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, correct? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so I could see this kind of a thing being something that local chambers of commerce could take on, even the U.S. Conference of Mayors, you know, that they could um, promote these kinds of collaborations. I love that model. I, I would love to see that, you know, elsewhere. And knowing that small businesses can get some of these resources free of charge on your website is tremendous. And I think that's a great service that you guys provide. You know, mm-hmm. some of our small businesses, some of the most difficult disasters or, you know, uh, disruptions they have to overcome come from violence, you know, robberies and, and um, you know, even I know it, I live near Oakland and there were a lot of Occupy Oakland protest marches going on, you know, over recent um, months and there was a lot of damage that was repeatedly done to small businesses. What are some strategies to help businesses prepare and recover from those types of events? So again, it's it's a lot of isolating what the what the effect of the problem is going to be. Is it a facilities problem? Is it a problem with my ability to open my doors? Um, if it's something like a, an active shooter problem, un- ha- having your employees understand whether they can and should evacuate in that case, or whether it's it's more of a shelter in place scenario is really important. Important. Unfortunately, we're even seeing this in schools where teachers are having to. <laughs> train and exercise with students um, about what a shelter-in-place would, would feel like and would look like, locking the doors, turning off the lights, hiding in the corner. It's, it's not something that anybody likes to think about, but just as we do fire drills, it's important for us to have these sorts of drills as well so that we can better react when something does happen. Mm-hmm. Well said. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Chloe. So, folks, don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. You know, Chloe, it has been great um, learning about some of the principles and strategies that DRI International can help businesses learn um, to employ in order to be prepared for disasters and to recover from disasters. But I love to hear 
case studies. I love to hear testimonials. Can you give us maybe one or two stellar examples of companies that were able to recover from disasters quickly as a result of the training that you provided? Sure. Uh, This is really, interestingly, it can be difficult to talk to the press about organizations that have had a success or even, um, obviously, their failures are very um, obvious or Mm -hmm. disasters make headlines, um, but successes don't tend to because that means that the crisis was averted and (laughs) a lack of a crisis isn't really news. So it's really (laughs) interesting that even, you know, the World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction in Sendai, Japan had... 10,000 people there, but it wasn't news because there was no actual disaster happening. So why would you talk to disaster managers if there's no disaster? (laughs) And then, of course, if something has impacted an actual organization, they certainly don't want to talk about uh, what it was because then they come under, uh, you know, there's there's questions coming from their customers, maybe from their regulators. Um, One of the um, that said, as I said, financial organizations, financial institutions are very well prepared and they have robust programs in place. And that's because, number one, regulators are requiring it from them. And number two, their customers are asking them to have business continuity plans. And so when we think of, you know, Goldman Sachs during Hurricane Sandy, making sure that they covered their perimeter with uh, sandbags so that the flooding didn't impact them and that way they were able to turn on their generator and turn on the lights again um, is a success story, but one that they're not necessarily going to brag about because it it does open them up to kind of some negative press as well. Although when we think about it, um, we certainly do want our financial institutions to be resilient in in the face of disasters because it is our money that they're holding. Um, So (laughs) we do want to make sure that we we consider that when we think about uh, financial organization preparedness. We talked a little bit about how uh, Walmart, you know, came under some negative press from Bangladesh and Rana Plaza, but Walmart actually helps with with FEMA here in the United States because they're very good at moving inventory from point A to point B. That's their whole business model is reliant on being able to move product. So during a hurricane, uh, they they were noticing that maybe FEMA was suddenly having to, to operate in the same business that they are. So instead, they were saying, how can we help to make sure that there's enough drinking water for people in that local community? Because that's what we're really good at. And that's something that we can help FEMA do. And we can do it better than they can. So that's another great ex- concrete example of how businesses and the public sector can work together it, when something does happen. And I love that. La- mm-hmm. And just lastly, quickly, we ta- touched a little bit about the importance of making sure that our healthcare organizations and our hospitals are resilient in the face of disasters of all kinds, threats of all kinds. And I would say that here is more of a plea for making sure that they get a, a sufficient funding to be able to prepare and to fund programs like these, which tend to be uh, grant funded. So they'll kind of get an an influx of money after something has happened and there's awareness and then they'll say, okay, that program has been built. Now we don't need the funding there anymore. Uh, And then it kind of depletes for a while until something else happens. And that's not a sustainable model. So I think we're going to see a lot more investment now in our healthcare institutions and we're going to need to see that um, in order to make sure that they're there for us during the next crisis. Well, and, you know, it's funny, now that you mentioned that, I remember during the quote-unquote Ebola scare in the U.S., Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I think that when we were all really paying attention to it, it there were something like 11 beds that were in the whole nation yeah. that were ready for this. It was like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, really? That's that's the best we can do. But uh, you're right. I think, you know, the, the funding for those types of things, they're stretched. Hospitals are like so many other institutions like schools and others where their budget is always stretched to the max. And so disaster preparedness, um, you know, it's going to take a lot of people um, and consensus to agree that we must uh, make that part of our priorities. You know, Chloe, well, you... I just want to say quickly, sure. while, because you brought up Ebola, um, is something that's interesting about our risk psychology. Ebola was never really a huge threat in the U.S., but yeah. we suddenly we're thinking about it all the time, and that's because it's human nature to overweight exotic risk, and mm-hmm. we tend to think about it a lot. So this is why we're much more afraid of flying than we are about driving, because mm-hmm. we drive every day, but we're actually much more likely to die in a car crash than in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. So we overweight, overweight these things that seem unfamiliar to us. In reality, a lot of what we're most at risk for are those things that are mundane, that are considered normal to us, and we just kind of accept living with that risk. A lot of what preparedness is about is understanding the probability of actual risks to you, to your organization, to your family, and then preparing for those more likely risks. Mm-hmm. That's that's really smart and, and well said. Chloe, you serve as director for the charitable arm of DRI International, whose vision is resilient communities worldwide. And according to the website, its mission is to promote disaster risk reduction awareness through partnerships and education and to aid recovery efforts through fundraising and volunteerism. I would love for you to tell our listeners more about the work of the DRI Foundation and some of the case studies of success. Um, of which you are most proud. Absolutely. I mean, Disaster Recovery Institute International, the parent, of course, certifies individuals who then work for large companies and governments. So we thought it was really important to how can we leverage the expertise of our 13,000-plus certified professionals globally and get them more active in their communities to promote resilience where it's maybe not, where it doesn't have as much funding or as much attention. And we do that in in three different ways. One is through education, um, and we have scholarships and we have education programs to promote resilience. Um, Then we have community resilience, and that's really about encouraging our certified professionals to volunteer. So an example of that would be DRI has an annual conference that moves around to different cities in the U.S. every year, and we tack on a volunteer day where we encourage certified professionals to give back to our host community in ways that will make it more resilient um, and really getting out there and making a difference. And then the third part of that is donations after disasters where we uh, fundraise after something has occurred, and then we try to strategically invest the the funds that we've raised into resilience-building measures. A lot of money goes into the immediate emergency response phase, and a lot of it, frankly, disappears. We think that that money would be better spent, invested in long-term resilience-building measures that have a concrete and sustainable return over time. So um, an example of of that would be we had a a large um, fundraising event called Dance for Nepal with the dance community here in New York City and uh, raised a lot of money that we are now investing in various functions in, in Nepal to make sure that they have clean water and places to live moving forward. 
That's fantastic. I love it. Mm. And I think it's great that that DRI International has that charitable um, component. That That's terrific. In the final moments that we have left in the show, I'd love for you to give each of our listeners two or three tips for applying the principles of preparedness and recovery to their own homes and their own families. Sure. I think it's, it's really important that we take some time to think about this with our families. What would we do in the event of a crisis? Um, it's good to have an emergency preparedness kit at home. Make sure that you have some water. Make sure that you have a first aid kit. Make sure that you have copies of everybody's prescriptions and that you know where they are so that you can take them at a moment's notice. Make sure that you've thought about evacuation routes and how you would get in touch with each other if an evacuation had to occur. Typically, when something happens, maybe somebody's at work, somebody's at school, somebody's in the home. So agree on several meeting points so that everybody's not trying to rush around and find each other when those last critical moments can really make a difference. And I think it's important to remember that we have to rely on various types of communication. Don't clog up the phone lines. Texting is much better. It takes up much less bandwidth. So it's important to text. Don't talk to talk to let your family know that you're okay. And lastly, be informed. Understand what your risks are understand what you would do with them um, in the event that something happens so that you and your family can be safe. Thank you so much, Chloe. It has been such a pleasure having you on the show. And I want our listeners to check out, just Google DRI International. They have a lot of great resources on their uh, their website. And as Chloe mentioned, there are some free uh, training modules that even small businesses can employ. Thanks so much for being with us, Chloe. And thanks to our listeners for being with us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.